Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, a plumer's column is heading north towards Petersburg to crush the town that had escaped the British thus far. Denise Rates will experience a terrible wound to his leg, and we will probe an issue that has caused much gnashing of teeth, the role of black South Africans in the war. A quick note for my American listeners. In South Africa, people who are mixed race are known as coloured. I know the phrase is frowned upon by Americans, but here in Africa, it's accepted. I've tried to show how the myth that there were no black fighting men on both sides is just that, a myth, by using examples of how close black men and women were to the action throughout these podcasts over the last 18 months. Professor Bill Nassen published a book in the Anglo-Boer War series called Uyadela Wen Osulapo, which is a cry of a fallen Zulu warrior urging his comrades to carry on the fight. On the cover of his book is a black member of the British Army in Mafeking, photographed alongside Lord Baden-Powell. Inside, the full photograph shows a group of black soldiers sitting with the famous general. All are stern-faced, the soldiers holding the Lee Metford rifles and sporting large bandoliers around their shoulders. They were scouts and transport riders and armed to the teeth. When the war began in 1899, contemporary observers assumed that blacks would not be allowed to play any part in the coming hostilities, but of course that was naive. A British commentator in the fortnightly review told readers that blacks, in his words, would be impossible to control if they were armed. The risk of rebellion meant that the British in particular were petrified of stoking uprisings, considering what had happened to them in Zululand in 1879, where the Zulu had killed 1,300 of their best troops at the Battle of Asantlawana. Jan Smuts, too, had written that this was to be a war between whites, saying that this was in the interests of self-preservation, as he put it. The British War Office assumed that the regular army and white volunteers from Australia, New Zealand and Canada would do the job and overcome the Boers in a month or two. For the British, the assumption had two significant outcomes. Firstly, they couldn't use their well-trained Hausa troops from West Africa, nor the Indian and Chinese combat-ready contingents. After the war began, there were complaints to the British government from Milner, the High Commissioner in the Cape. In 1900, the Colonial Office received a letter from Milner complaining about the use of Maori warriors by New Zealand units. In Natal, a contingent of Zulu warriors who were going to fight for the British was asked to stand down. This meant that this war would not be run on a classic 19th century colonial conflict in Africa, at least on the surface. It was to be a rather curious war of imperialism, but this was also an illusion. When war began, both Boer republics decreed that all male inhabitants between the ages of 16 and 60 were liable for military service, and the regulations did not say anything about only whites. Specific provision was made for coloured men to be enlisted for commando duty. The Transvaal Martial Law also outlined how all men, black and white, could be commandeered for other services, including labour. In the Orange Free State, black workers had already been called up to take part in the trench digging and other defensive work. As the Boer men moved off their farms, black servants and tenant farmers were given protective custody of young Boer children in cases who were then given sanctuary in Swaziland and Basutoland. Some of these children spent so much time with their new families when they returned to their Boer homes after the war, they had become Africanized, according to Nassen's research, which meant they spoke black languages better than Dutch. It's now known that over 100,000 black and coloured men were used by the British as labourers 
during this war. Thousands of black men and women worked as spies for the Boers, and these were treated far better. They were used for infiltration, long-range reconnaissance, and intelligence gathering, and were trusted servants and personally loyal to the burghers. They were also better fed, clothed, and paid than their colleagues, who were drivers or trench diggers. One of the more sensitive areas covered in this war regards sex. Security worries on the British side in particular increased when the soldiers fraternised with young women who sometimes were hired by the Boers to retrieve information. With poor women teeming around the camps and depots across South Africa, doing domestic chores like washing, some were also providing sexual services for soldiers. In 1900, for example, the 5th Lancers assigned camp constables to monitor the movements of what they called suspicious female natives. They searched the women for stolen documents and dispatches. In 1901, the South Wales borderers pounced on several black washerwomen who had been passing information to Boer commando spies. One of these spies became famous. His name was Alfred Malapi. He was fluent in Dutch and English, and his English was so good that he kept their camps under close observation for a whole year before he was rumbled. Usually, the spies would turn on their masters in return for indemnity, but not Alfred Malapi, who refused to become a turncoat. He was executed by the British in the northeastern Cape when they realised he would not change sides. The angry firing squad commander noted Malapi's nerve, saying, He had been posing for some months as one of our natives, dressed exactly like one of our men, khaki coat, breeches, putties, even an army cap. During the siege of Mafeking, General Cronier had used blacks in his fortifications, while the same story was repeated at Ladysmith where Basutu riflemen guarded forward positions at night for the Boers. In October 1900, General John French ran into raiding Transvaal commandos which contained fighting Africans. Months later, 50 Basutu riflemen and other black combatants were spotted fighting alongside an Orange Free State commando, causing problems for the British in the upper Tugela region. In the Western Transvaal, Commandant Besaidenot assembled an entire squad of black troops who were deployed as mounted marksmen. They were told to shoot only coloured scouts and dispatch riders, as well as black runners used as messengers by the British, but there's no doubt their bullets found their way into the bodies of white troops as well. Jan Smuts and Marnie Maritz hired at least 70 black marksmen as sharpshooters during their Namaqualand operations in the closing months of the war. I'll leave that story for later. Given Smut's so-called stiff view of the evils of black involvement, this was perhaps one of the war's many ironies. Small British garrison and camp forces had many bruising encounters with coloured and black combatants who demonstrated great skill at light skirmishing, the Boers' favourite tactic. Grumpy British officers wrote of the speed and accuracy, saying, Undoubtedly fighting men are not mere carriers of arms. Fully the fighting lines against us. The Boers were exploiting the mobilization of their camp followers, or achtereyers, that means after-riders or mounted retainers. These mounted black men were used during the hunting and wars against other black tribes throughout the 18th and 19th century. They were black and coloured servants who looked after ammunition supplies, loaded rifles, handled horses, prepared food, collected firewood, and attended to wagons and livestock. During the Great Trek, black Achtereyers fought alongside the Boers during the Voortrekker Zulu battles. Professor Nassen estimates there were up to 14,000 mounted servants and gun bearers drafted in to assist the Boer forces. 
These men were extraordinary in many ways, not least for their artisanal skills. They undertook gun maintenance and repair, tended horses, serviced saddles, repaired transport wagons and gun carriages, collected medicinal herbs, and even nursed wounded burghers. During battle, they played a key logistical role, such as running ammunition between units and foraging for food. We heard how Denise Raitz's black colleague Charlie somehow managed to come up with chickens for dinner during their long stint at the Natal Front. More importantly, I've explained how the Boer mode of warfare was based on fighting from high ground, then rapidly retreating by sliding down the backs of the slopes and springing onto their horses and riding away. The mode was tied to skilled black servants and their preparedness. Battles where the Boer and their black Achtereus were particularly successful in this technique included Marcusfontein, Falkrans, Moder River and Belmont. The Achtereus would fall back to concealed spots with the Burgers' horses and pack animals beyond the range of English artillery. During the firefights, black servants would bring up ammunition, carry reserve bandoliers and sometimes reload second rifles that many Boers carried. By bunching the horses on the edges of Boer defensive positions, these Achtereus helped maintain tactical mobility, which was essential to counter British attempts at outflanking manoeuvres. A British regimental journal called the Light Bob Gazette reported ruefully that each Boer, it seems, has a stout henchman, or it may be that two or three Boers have a henchman between them. In the event of alarm, he rapidly catches and saddles up his Boer master's horse, while the Boer collects from him his rifle, bandolier, haversack and water bottle. These Achtereas were also called on to be Fuereas, front riders, scouts and pointmen armed with rifles. They were intimately incorporated into commando life, toiling and sweating alongside the Boers to maintain operations, sharing military fortune and misfortune, sitting around the campfire and sipping the same coffee and brandy. When the Boers retreated from the Battle of Ilanslachte in Natal, their rampaging British cavalry cut down both the Boers and their Achtereas, who were riding together trying to run from the fearful cavalry lances. British officers reported what they called half-Dutch, half-native soldiers, blacks, dressed in the same garments as the Burgers, carrying rifles and ammunition, and being shot down in the war. In 1901, the Highland Light Infantry Chronicle provided an intelligence officer's report who was truly astonished, saying, The commander's familiarity with their black comrades, they laugh, talk, eat and joke with them like equals. There are hardly any written records left by these Achtereas, unfortunately. There's a mystery about motivation. They were regarded as virtual slaves by many Boers, and any desertion was met with short shrift, though it'd be shot or hanged if returned. The intensely personal master-servant paternalism made this picture far more complex. Charlie, who worked for Denise Rates, was actually living in Swaziland when the war broke out and promptly returned to the Transvaal to provide Achtereya services for the Rates brothers. He could easily have remained where he was in safety, but chose adventure and danger. There are clear cases where the black Achtereyas regarded warfare as a way to prove their manhood. The writing that we do have shows they were not motivated by the aims of the Boers to achieve independence for their republics. It was far more visceral. Young men are automatic soldier material. It's been that way since the first human picked up the first weapon. Take Silas Damon, nicknamed English, who accompanied the Free State Commandos operating in the Cape between November 1899 and February 1900 when he was captured. 
His personal journal obtained by the British, when they eventually captured him, recorded relationships with various Dutch girls on regular visits as he rode about the felt, as well as a list of livestock he had secured for his commando, and furniture and other goods he'd pilfered during his soirees. He was what you would call an adventurer. But by March 1901, as the war moved into the guerrilla phase, most achterreis were no longer required. Some stayed on, but the majority went home, including Charlie. I'll deal with the other really interesting part of black South Africa's role in the war later. That's where African societies living on the borders of the republics became crucial in regional diplomacy. As you'll hear, it wasn't a simple master-servant relationship here either. The Basutu, for example, in what is now Lesotho, have never been defeated by either the Boers or the British. This is very different from the experience of other frontier countries like Australia or the United States. There, the white colonials met indigenous people who sharpened bone and stone for their arrowheads. The Australian experience was against people who used boomerangs. The Basutu, by comparison, were smelting iron weapons, living in large towns. They weren't nomads. The people across South African societies at that time had a long history of managing crops and doing deals with Arab, European and even Indian slave traders, selling ivory, gold and other commodities in exchange for industrial goods and weapons. The Swazis, for example, responded like the Portuguese. They remained on polite terms with both the British and the Boers. They were neutral. But more about diplomacy in later podcasts. We must now return to early April 1901 and join our narrator, Denise Reitz, who, as we heard last week, had been holed up in Swat Ruchens to the west of Pretoria in the hill country. The British are searching for this bolt hole with its fresh water deep in the gorge, but they could not find it. Remember, on April 3rd, Dene celebrated his 18th birthday after being forced to flee a British force that almost caught his convoy napping in the mist. It was here that he somehow managed to cripple himself, and that was in Swatrachens. Two days after our arrival at the new camp, I tried to smash a log for fuel by bringing down a heavy stone on top of it. The stone came back at me like a shot from a catapult, breaking my right tibia halfway between my knee and ankle. His classically understated comment hid what was really an extremely bad break. It was a compound fracture. The bone snapped and pierced the skin. For three weeks I lay in great pain and discomfort with splinters of bone working their way out from a separating wound, he writes. He had no proper access to medicines and would now be lucky not to lose his leg. Fortunately for the youngster, also in Swatruchen's camp at that time was a German with what Reitz called a working knowledge of surgery, who was marooned in the gorge along with the Boers. Who this mystery German is, Reitz fails to tell us, but after a fortnight of treatment, it was so successful that he managed to hobble about. The fact that Reitz was hobbling at all after suffering a compound fracture of his leg is remarkable, so the German must have been an exceptional surgeon and Reitz an exceptional patient. There was no sign of the English in the time it took for him to become slightly mobile again, another stroke of luck. Had the camp been attacked, he would have had no chance to escape. On the upside, spare horses were being brought in daily now after months of a shortage of the all-important animals. Eight other members of his wagon had all been provided with fresh mounts. Even the German surgeon had ridden out of Swatruchens, leaving a disgruntled race behind. He was beginning to think... He would become that much-despised person, a professional camp follower, which was code for coward or thief. 
A chance turn, however, brought me relief, he writes. One morning, soon after I was able to limp around, a small party of Germans rode into camp under command of a little hunchbacked field cornet named Meyer. They were part of the last of the Germans fighting for the Boers. Around 40 men, led by this hunchback, who worked with General de la Rey's dwindling army. Meyer had heard through the German surgeon that there were men stranded at the wagon lager in Swatrichens, and so he had bought more spare horses. But there was a catch. Meyer agreed to let me have a little grey mare on condition that I joined them. Rates was by no means healed. He was suffering agonies as his broken bones rubbed against each other, but he was also convinced he was going to be stranded in the gorge forever. I made over my half share in our wagon and deemed to the only remaining member of our original company, and with my leg in a splint accompanied the Germans when they set out on their return to Delaray's forces. It was a harsh journey. Rates was certainly one of the more courageous men to fight in this long war. Just think about the pain he must have endured, leg throbbing and aching at every stride, grinding together. Worse, the winter had set in early, and the winter of 1901 was to be particularly severe, with snowstorms and sleet across the high plains. I had not felt the cold so much in the seclusion of the valley where we had been camped up to now, but out in the open it was a different matter. By day, clouds of dust and biting winds drove across the bleak plain, and at night we could hear the crackle of ice forming on the pools as we lay shivering beneath our threadbare blankets. It was going to be five long months of a viciously cold winter that killed people across South Africa, both British and Boer. By late April 1901, the German commander had ridden northeast across the felt, meeting no one. Another great drive by the British ordered by Lord Kitchener was underway, with Delaray's men hanging on to its flanks. English soldiers were burning and smashing the country, leaving it a wasteland. This was part of the campaign, as you know, to force the Boers to surrender, cut their lines of supply by herding the civilians into concentration camps and then destroying all crops. At length we came on some commandos in the ridges near the village of Hartebeersport, where they lay in attendance on a large contingent of English troops. That village is northwest of Pretoria, the capital, and fairly close. Brates was happy to be off his horse and the agony of every movement. They were told there were 12,000 of their enemy nearby. The English were aware that the commander was in the ridges behind them. Meyer had met up with more Germans. There were now around 100 in his company. Reitz lay with these men, observing the English going about their business. Watching their camps, guns and convoys, waiting for them to make their first move. They sent shells over us at times, but were obviously holding their hand until they were ready. The Boers numbered 600 facing 12,000, so they were not exactly looking forward to the English lion waking up. Still, General de la Rey was with them, and as with all great leaders, the burghers really believed they had a chance as long as he led them. Rates had been at Harbiersput for two days, when late one afternoon General de la Rey rode past as the youngster was having his leg dressed by the Germans. The general ordered him to a field hospital that had been established a few kilometres away. It was a ruined farmhouse, and there, a Hollander doctor, as Rates called him, tended to the wounded. It was a cheerless place, says Rates, with only dried grass to lie on, and in the absence of medicines or bandages, there was little enough comfort for the patients. However, his recuperation was to be rudely interrupted by the English. I'll leave that for next week, 
as the 12,000-strong force awoke, attacking the Boers hiding in the ridges above Hardebeespoort. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. You can send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste val, het zeevroerlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die oud daar waar mij zaal.